0: and welcome back to Planty Planty Zoo Zoo. My name's Steph. And I'm Connor. And each week we add one species of plant and one species of animal to our fantasy zoo and botanical gardens. Don't we, Connor?
1: We do indeed. (laughs) Yeah. So what have we been up to the last two weeks, Connor? We went to Centre Park on the bougiest holiday I have ever been on. (laughs) It was absolutely delightful. Oh my God. It was just us sat in a little cabin in woodlands for four days, and I've never felt so mentally healthy.
0: Oh, this is not an advert for Centre Parks, but uh he is fully converted but now.
1: If Centre Parks would like to sponsor the podcast, we will take payment in several more trips to several more forests.
0: <laughs> it was great. They were like muntjac deer. They'd come like right up to the windows and, and like squirrels and things. There was a
1: pheasant that kept pecking on the door of our cabin yeah. for food. Yeah, I We didn't people... feed him.
0: No, I imagine people do feed them though, which is probably yeah. why they're so like, can I come in? Hello?
1: Yeah. <laughs> it was literally just like slamming his face against the window, It's like, yeah. please, please, <laughs> please. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it was lots of fun and it was, the one in Woburn, it's got like a big tropical paradise swimming pool and rapids, which we've flung ourselves down at night time, that went outside.
1: Literally like 8.30pm, just going down some very fast water in the dark when it's heated to 30 degrees... Oh my god, <laughs> bliss!
0: We've decided that when we're all rich and we have a mansion, we're going to build a lazy river yeah. running through it. Like oh, yeah. it's going to go outdoors. It's also going to go indoors, and I'm just going to be floating on it with my laptop, doing my work.
1: You'll be taking like business meetings, just like in a rubber dinghy. When on I'm a rich, lazy I'm not going to be taking business
0: meetings. <laughs> <laughs> going to pay someone to pretend to be me. And do
1: it. <laughs> so yeah, we had a lovely weekend with my family. With they Jess's were there family. too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> No, it was really, really lovely. And then we came back, and you were uh, especially were immediately confronted by the realities of work. Yep. And all the mental good that it did dissipated evaporated. very
1: quickly. Yeah. <laughs> but I still have the memories of how good I felt.
0: That's nice. We'll go on holiday again. <laughs> I promise.
1: Oh, working outside in the autumn is hard. <laughs> it's beautiful, and things are lovely, but it is much colder than in the summer. <laughs> I miss being warm.
0: Oh, God.
1: (laughs) On that depressing note, would you like to kick off this week with your plant species?
0: Yes, I'd love to start. So, last week... I did quite a fact-heavy one. If you haven't listened already, you definitely should. It's really interesting, but it's about new species of pitcher plants and plants that grow underground, and it was very, very cool, but, yeah, quite fact-based. So I thought this week I'd go down the storytelling route a bit more and deliver some really interesting history. I love a bit of history. You hate history.
1: I don't hate history.
0: He thinks anything before 2003 is a period drama. No, I'm
1: interested in history... I just find period dramas boring and I can feel, I can feel Hope, Hope's my sister, just absolutely rolling her eyes in disgust because she loves Downton Abbey. But I just, I don't vibe with them.
0: But like, it'll be something from like the 1980s and you'll be like, but it's a period drama.
1: If I wasn't alive for it, it's a period drama. (laughs) So you're the anything, worst person so anything up to 1998 was a period drama oh my
0: god this makes
1: me it like it fills me with rage because
0: it's so like irrational <laughs> and history's really interesting
1: are we here to discuss my television hearing habits or your right now plants? i want
0: to address this
1: no, should we talk about your silly plants?
0: <laughs> so this is about tulips oh yeah
1: like Amsterdam
0: yeah, exactly. They have those. They do have those. Good job. So, they are bright and colourful flowers. They have that really distinctive kind of cup shape. And like you said, very heavily associated with the Netherlands and Dutch culture.
1: Mm-hmm. Easiest flower to draw.
0: They are very easy to draw. Yeah. Semicircle. Nope. Half a circle. Semicircle? <laughs> Was I right the first time? Nice. <laughs> so, although we associate them with the Netherlands and Dutch culture a lot... They are actually native to Central Asia. Oh. And they arrived in the Netherlands via the Ottoman Empire, via Turkey. So there are over 3,000 registered varieties of tulips. And these are categorised into 15 different groups based on like, their shape, their size, their flowering period. And they come in almost every colour, except they don't come in true blue. But they can be single coloured, bicoloured or multicoloured.
1: That's really cool. What do you mean they don't come in true blue? what's like true bright blue why
0: well it's very rarely found in plants in nature isn't it there's that blue orchid but when I went to Kew Gardens in their orchid festival and they have those orchid displays which I love they did them in February ish time I think they have blue orchids but they've just dyed them oh. because it's so rare so with tulips when you picture tulips do you have you ever seen the, the ones that are kind of stripey I'm not sure So uh, you get lots of tulips that have kind of streaks where there's like no colour there. So it just makes them look very stripy. They're very popular. But weirdly, they're actually caused by a virus. It's called the tulip breaking virus. Here I'll show you an example. So as you can see, they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, beautiful, stripy. Yeah, very commonly you see them. And because there's so many different varieties and they're really, really beautiful. But it's caused by a virus that weakens the plant. So people will specifically breed these cultivars, but with every sort of generation, it gets weaker and weaker, um, and they often tend to just sort of die out. So yeah, that's to introduce. That's a bit of tulip knowledge. And the Netherlands is the world's largest producer of tulips, growing billions a year. Billions? Mm, They're well into tulips. They're the
1: country of big tulips, aren't they?
0: Yeah. But have you heard of a time when the tulip completely tanked the
1: Dutch economy? For some... I think I might have. I think I, I think I vaguely remember something about this.
0: Yeah, it's for something that is so popular and loved in the Netherlands. It completely destroyed their entire economy at one point, <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Not funny, interesting.
1: Sorry, sorry to any Dutch people listening.
0: This story takes place in the 1630s, so it's a time that was known as the Dutch Golden Age. So, you had a lot of art and science going on. Very prosperous lots of commerce so the tulip became really really popular when it arrived Mm -hmm. because of its beauty and you can imagine if you've not seen one before uh, how like amazing and like incredible that would be because of the unique shape and the variety of different colors and things like that so it was introduced to the Netherlands by Carolus Clusius who's a botanist and the first tulip was planted in Hortus botanicus which is a botanical garden in Leiden in the Netherlands. So we need to go there. (laughs) So the new flower immediately sparked interest, especially among rich people in the Netherlands. And rare varieties became really, really popular. So particularly the ones that were stripy with that tulip breaking virus. People were like, wow, amazing, unique, incredible, beautiful, and really wanted those. So it started driving up the value of tulips. So now we move on to tulipomania.
1: Yes, I've heard of this.
0: Yeah, so tulips quickly became a status symbol in Dutch society. The demand for rare tulips went way up and prices just skyrocketed. So among them Semper augustus was the most coveted variety, which is a really cool name for a tulip because it sounds like an emperor. Yeah. Semper Augustus. Maybe that's who it was named after. The economic impact was so significant that some tulip bulbs actually cost more than houses.
1: Whoa. That's
0: at the top of its its craze. And not just like, it costs more than a house, but the house is in like Croydon. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't that they were more expensive than like your cheaper houses. They were more expensive than like mansions on the, the rivers, you know, on the riverside in Amsterdam. Like they were proper, properly at one tulip. It just seems crazy to me to spend that much money on something that, like, fingers crossed it doesn't die. Like, you know, like, what yeah. if you forgot to water it or something? And then you just lost a house. The tulip trade evolved into a futures market. I had to look up what that was. And, like, when I read it, I was like, oh, do I really want to do this story? And then I was like, no, it is interesting. It's just because someone used a serious term with me. But it's basically where people traded contracts for tulips to be delivered later. So the contracts were bought and sold. Often didn't even have the physical tulip bulbs. Like, so
1: I like pay you forty pounds to get me seven tulips in three weeks.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly like that.
1: I felt like a man in a maths equation then.
0: If I <laughs> pay Steph for seven tulips in three weeks, how many miles per hour does this car go? <laughs>
1: <laughs> what is the circumference of this? <laughs> <laughs> How many watermelons mel- can he hold at one time?
0: <laughs> I am traumatised by maths exams. The frenzy became... Very, very intense because these speculative trading fueled the market. So it's basically a a good analogy is like if you have a trading card and um, you have one that's really high value. And so then loads of people want it because it's really high value, but not because it actually holds any fundamental value. And then because everyone, yeah, everyone wants it, everyone's paying for it. And it makes other people pay more for the same thing and it goes up and up. So that's basically what ha- what was happening. Everyone wanted to get in on the action. I, when I was reading through this, it, I was like, I don't know if this is what's what happened with Bitcoin. Because, you know, they often go like, yeah. everyone wants it. Oh, it's really popular. And then it crashes again. But yeah, it was very, very intense and very popular in like news stories and society. Got really integrated into culture and everything. So, for instance, a swim... Uh, <laughs> swimney cheap, a chimney sweep, purchased a tulip bulb at a really like modest price and then later sold it for a really significant profit, completely like changing his life. And so those kinds of stories were really inspiring to people. It's like now when we get motivated or interested by like videos and things on TikToks or whatever, and we're like, oh, wow, I could do that. That's what everyone was doing. There's also one story where a sailor mistakenly ate a rare and extremely (laughs) valuable tulip bulb He ate it with his herring sandwich. He thought it was an onion. He got arrested.
1: That's you in this story. If you are going to be a character in this story, you're the silly little man that ate a tulip because he thought it was an onion.
0: I'm not that keen on it. Like Onion's good, but I don't think I'd go to the effort. I'd just eat my herring sandwich and have a nap. So why did it all crash? It was all going so well. Everyone was so happy with their tulips. But eventually the market just became oversaturated with tulip bulbs. Has uh, led to a sharp decline in demand and triggered a panic selling among investors as people were like, oh no, suddenly it's not worth as much because everyone's got them, so now I better sell mine, otherwise, you know, I'm not going to be able to make as much money. So the Dutch government attempted to stabilise the market, but it didn't work out. So the consequences of this, of tulipomania, it's called, I like the word tulipomania as one word, but it's also just known as mania. Many people faced financial ruin as a result of the bubble bursting, the economic downturn had a lasting impact on Dutch economy. And the, this sort of historical time and event is studied as a really early example of an economic bubble and speculative bubble bursting. So, uh, yeah, the cultural legacy of tulip mania, though, has left a lasting impact on Dutch culture, which is why you find them everywhere and why they export billions a year. So I was thinking about what to add. I've gone for two. One just didn't feel like enough.
1: I was so concerned you were going to add 3,000. <laughs> like, I it's like when would I was like, not have put it past you.
0: It's like when I added every species of seagrass. 72, yeah. yeah. So I have decided to add the variety semper augustus. So it was the rarest and most coveted one at the time. It's very distinctive looking. I've got a photo up for you. See, Ooh. it is very beautiful. Do you want to describe it for the audience?
1: It looks like a candy cane in a tulip form or like a little, one of those like pinwheel boiled sweeps. It's yeah. got lovely white and red stripes. It looks like a barbershop quartet if it was a tulip.
0: Nice. Yes. So that's what we'll be adding.
1: I also like that you said, oh, I've got a picture for you and you showed me a medieval drawing of a tulip.
0: Well, there's a good reason for that, unfortunately. Oh no. Yeah. So... Before we get onto that. As you said, it's known for its striking crimson and white streaks, and it was celebrated for how unique and how beautiful it was. So me and the tulip have. A oh, lot in I was going
1: to make the same joke, you little.
0: <laughs> At the height of tulipomania, a single Semper Augustus bulb could cost as much as a luxurious house in Amsterdam. The rarity of this particular tulip variety added to its allure and drove up its market value. And owning it was considered a massive status symbol. So it really was showcasing your wealth and social standing with this flower. Sadly, it's been lost to history so it no longer exists today. It's a legendary and enigmatic figure in the history of tulips and economic bubbles. And this is because do you remember me saying at the beginning about the breaking virus? Yeah. So that's what's caused the stripes in Semper yeah. Augustus. So over generations um of it being produced, it gets weaker and weaker and weaker Oh. finally just breaks apart.
1: Oh.
0: Because you're essentially just breeding diseased flowers.
1: But they're pretty diseased flowers. They're no,
0: they're pretty ones.
1: That's rubbish.
0: I know. It's very sad.
1: So the thing that gave it its value Killed actually it. destroyed it.
0: Oh. In terms of botanical gardens, normally I'm here and I'm like, yeah, no botanical garden has this plant that I can see on the internet. But tulips is like, yeah, it's in, is in all the botanical gardens. Boring.
1: <laughs> there's a in... new botanical garden. God. <laughs>
0: Losers. But in particular, uh, there's one called kokonoff gardens in the netherlands and it's one of the largest flower gardens in the world and they showcase millions of tulips every year so i'd love to go there it's quite interesting but tulips are actually perennials in that they they can flower multiple times in a year but people treat them as annuals once a year because every time they bloom they're weaker so they don't want them to bloom multiple times in a year but you could you could plant one and just let it bloom like every whatever few months however it works so yeah planty planty is easy tulip is this the first like pretty flower that's been introduced
1: i think this is probably the first plant that might not Killer person that's been introduced. Yeah, it's quite.
0: Yeah, it can't go in um natural selection garden. It'll be in the European area of Planting Plant Zuzu because we are dividing Planting Plant Zuzu in some way into sort of vaguely geographical regions, aren't we?
1: Yes.
0: So as people enter Europe department in Planting Plant Zuzu (laughs) and get smacked. With all these beautiful fields of tulips. Obviously, we'll have to recreate the Semper Augustus one. Maybe get some sculptures going on. You know what I really love? We, I think they had it at London Zoo that, when I went to the Lates once. Basically, everything was oversized and you yes. were very small like an ant. Yes. For no reason at all. Doesn't relate to the history of the tulips. I would just like to do that with the tulips. <laughs> And maybe you can scurry up them on a ladder and like have a nap. Oh, we could have tulip nap garden. And you can just go choose a tulip and fall asleep. That's for me specifically.
1: Tulip nap garden, that yeah. sounds delightful.
0: I really want to come up with something better. Sometimes I'm inspired by the storytelling element that goes along with the species I choose. And that's how we come up with those like, cool ideas, mm. um, like through folklore or whatever. But with this, it's like, no, we don't really need people acting out the <laughs> financial <laughs> bubble of tulip <laughs> mania. <laughs> Just stick them around. People will like them. God. Yeah,
1: to be fair. <laughs> I'll
0: just do that. Cool, so that's that. <laughs> my, my Zuzu. Tulips. And that's me.
1: Nice. Really cool plant to add to plant Planty Zuzu. So, my turn? Yeah, yes, please. Fabulous. Right, well, my species today is quite a cool one. So, as usual, I'm going to try and get you to guess what it is. But what I'm going to do today, which is why it was really funny that you showed me a medieval picture of a tulip. I'm gonna show you a medieval drawing of this animal. <gasps> and all you've got to do is try and work out this animal's name oh based on gosh. this drawing. So I'll give you a little clue. This drawing was done by William Bulow Gould from the sketchbook of fishes in
0: 1832. Wow. That looks like a seahorse.
1: Okay. What would you name it? If you were if you found this creature in the ocean. In the ocean. And you had to give it a name.
0: Based on those eyebrows, probably Gregory. Okay. Um, but if it's like quick, give it a sciencey name so that everyone doesn't laugh at you. I'd call it squishy-backed sludge fish.
1: <laughs> the squishy-backed sludge fish.
0: I was trying to say the squishy-backed slug fish, but I said sludge fish. And then I wasn't going to say my mistake because I was like, oh, my God, I made a mistake in my made up name. And I was like, just don't say anything. No one's going to know. But then I started talking and I'm still going.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So you were along the right track when you said seahorse.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, Um, Is it a seahorse? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I know a name of any seahorse. The common seahorse? No,
1: that... it's, it's not a seahorse. Oh,
0: it's not?
1: I said you were along the right tracks, not that you were right.
0: I have no idea what's similar to a seahorse. Sea cow?
1: No. You're actually, you're surprisingly close Sea pig? No, it's not a farmyard animal. <laughs> that it's... was
0: going to take a while, so I'm glad you
1: intervened. <laughs> S- does it's... it
0: have sea in it? It does. Okay.
1: It's a sea and then a creature.
0: Mm-hmm. Sea... Deer. Sea tree. Sea bug. No.
1: What does it look like? If it's not a horse, it looks like, what does it look like?
0: A tapir. It's got a long nose. What's got a long nose? Snake?
1: We're, we're going to be here for a while.
0: N- wait, wait. It, is it, has it got a long nose, the creature?
1: Not massively. And
0: why is the person called it that? Because <laughs> that's got a really long nose. I'm annoyed <laughs> now. This is like, have you seen medieval cats? Yes. That's my favourite. That's so funny. Um, my
1: favourite is medieval hedgehogs.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't use, what was it? They didn't use to know something about them. They, no, they used to think that they used their spines to roll around on the ground and pick up food.
1: Yeah, and so, <laughs> so all the medieval drawings, drawings that have got like little apples on their sticks. spines. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. So funny. <gasps> is that why they were?
1: Is that why you put pineapple and cheese on them? Uh, on hedgehogs? On like... You, what are you doing to you, hedgehogs? You, you make like your little cocktail party hedgehogs. Oh. You know, you have like the cheese. Yeah. I don't know if it's pineapple in hindsight, but it's,
0: no, it, is, it is
1: pineapple, isn't I it? I thought you
0: were running out into the garden at night. <laughs> Come here, little hedgehog, <laughs> shoving pineapple.
1: What well, I do after dark is my damn business, Steph. You leave me alone.
0: <laughs> um, now
1: tell me the name of this silly little man.
0: Is it the sea crocodile? No. They have real crocodiles in the sea already. <laughs> Is it the sea monster?
1: Oh. Oh? You're getting closer in that it's not a real creature.
0: Sea Cthulhu. (laughs) Sea unicorn. Sea dragon. Yes. Yay! Sea dragon. This Uh,
1: is a sea dragon. Looks
0: too concerned to be a dragon. Also, is it small? It is small. Dragons are big. (laughs) I watched a TikTok this week. That's a dragon conspiracy theory TikTok which was literally just dragons are definitely real, they definitely existed, and the government and higher-ups are trying to hide this fact from us. And it made me really happy. I was like, I'm happy to believe this. Maybe this is a conspiracy theory that unravels me. So you're doing sea dragons?
1: I'm doing sea dragons. So there are actually three species of sea dragon.
0: I thought you said they weren't real. Oh, the animal that the...
1: Yeah, dragons aren't real, babe.
0: Well, not according to (laughs) my research this week. Actually, there's a strong community of us that
1: are... <laughs> so there are three species of sea dragon, which are real.
0: Okay. Do you have a photo?
1: I do have a photo. I've got a photo of each of the three. <gasps> so so... there's
0: three in the world, three species in the world that are real. Have any gone extinct? Yes.
1: Sorry. No, I don't believe so. But, well, there's three. there's four species that are called sea dragons, Mm-mm. but the ribbon sea dragon is like cut out of scientific circles. Because mm. it's actually a pipe fish, not oh. a true sea dragon.
0: That's sad. So like Pluto.
1: This lovely medieval drawing is actually of Ooh. the Weedy Sea Dragon.
0: Oh, he's cute. That the medieval drawing was fairly accurate. Right? Yeah.
1: Then you've got the ruby sea dragon. Ooh. Less kind of leafy prongs.
0: And more, more pointy.
1: More pointy. I love that. And him. then you've got my favourite. The leafy sea dragon.
0: Oh, wow.
1: So as, to describe it to our listeners who can't see the amazing photos or drawings, it is, picture a seahorse, but rather than it being vertical, like with the head at the top and the tail at the bottom, it's more like an actual fish. So you've got the head at the front, the tail at the back, and you've got a very seaweedy kind of body, But from the top and bottom and the head and even the chin of this sea dragon, Mm. you've got little protrusions, especially on the leafy one, that look like leaves. They look like seaweed. They're really flowy when it moves as well. So it moves like it is replicating seaweed. And that's what the point of these kind of protrusions are. They are there to help it look like seaweed and keep it nice and camouflaged. So the reason it looks like a seahorse is because it... He's a member of the same family Mm-mm. as seahorses and pipefish. Nice, but these three species are separate to those. So the weedy and the ruby sea dragon are very closely related. They're in the same genus, and then the leafy sea dragon is a different genus.
0: Oh, that makes sense. Well. They do look very different.
1: Yeah, so you were really close to seahorses because it's very, very closely related to the seahorses. They're named sea dragons, derived from the Greek, their scientific name, where it means seaweed skin, because of how closely they look like seaweed, and they come ah. and they blend in. And it's found all along the southern and western coasts of Australia. Oh. This is, I think, our first Australian species. I think you're right. Yeah.
0: Except, unless you include, like, the strangler figs.
1: Cause... Well, yeah. My first Australian yeah. species of animal. That's nice. So those leafy bits, yeah, they're not for moving around. So they help it look nice and camouflaged when it moves around. So it looks like just a piece of floating seaweed that no one's really going to bother. But actually moves around using very small, teeny tiny, very thin and see-through fins along the top and the bottom. They're very cool. So that's actually how it gets that motion and that movement. And they can also, to help behave to that camouflage, actually change their skin colour, supposedly.
0: Ooh, like a chameleon.
1: A little bit like a chameleon, but chameleons don't do it to blend in. Why do they do it? It's to do with the mood in chameleons.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Uh, so, but Whereas these ones do do it to blend in, supposedly. But it might depend on age, condition, stress levels, the diet, things like that. Mm. So they have to have kind of specific things to start changing their skin. And even though they're related to seahorses, they do get much bigger. So you said, are they bigger or are they little? Grand scheme of things, they're little, but they're bigger than seahorses. They can actually get up to about 24 centimetres long. Wow. So roughly... The same size as a giant mudskipper that we talked about last week. Mudskipper. So pretty
0: pretty big. Yeah.
1: So they get bigger than seahorses, but that's not the only difference they have because they don't actually grab onto things like seahorses. So seahorses do have that prehentile tail that they use to kind of grip onto seaweed. Sea dragons don't do that, except the ruby sea dragon, which does.
0: That's my favourite one anyway.
1: Yeah, it's very cool. It doesn't have as many
0: <laughs> leafy it's not as bits, fancy,
1: no. But it's got a very nice colour. Yeah. So that one does have a prehensile tail and can grab onto things. But leafy sea dragons and weedy sea dragons do not. But what they do have in common with seahorses is a really cool parenting and mating and re- rearing system. <gasps> so just like seahorses, it is the dads that carry all the eggs. Mm. So when a male and a female meet, they will do a little courtship dance, and I've, I. Been real knuckled down to the husbandry guidelines for keeping sea dragons.
0: To <laughs> you find could this have some weird rabbit holes when you're researching for this podcast, don't you? Like... Yeah,
1: completely. Shout out to Sea Life Centres for writing those husbandry guidelines, because they've been really useful.
0: I've got a lot of updated knowledge on 17th century life as a Dutch person, <laughs> which I didn't need. It's why I was taking so long. And then I was like, I don't need any of this. Oh, <laughs> goddammit.
1: <laughs> but apparently, when they're getting ready to mate, they kind of do a bit of a courtship dance where they kind of spin around each other in circles and move from the bottom of their tank all the way up to the top, Aww. and then down to the bottom again. And at some point during that, the female will take her ovipositor,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which a little bit like a dragonfly, is a really kind of long tubey bit that she pops the eggs out on, yep. and she will lay about 150 bright pink eggs wow. on a patch of the male's tail. There's a really spongy patch called a brood patch Mm. and that gets them supplied with all the oxygen and they will hatch after something like four to six weeks, sometimes up to nine weeks, according to some of the research I did, I think depending on water conditions and things like that. Mm. uh, But usually about four to six weeks, those 250 bright pink eggs, not 150. Oh, wow. Those 250 eggs will all hatch and they will be helped along by... The dad, so he'll shake his tail around a little bit. He might rub it on seaweed or rocks and stuff to help those eggs hatch, help those young get out. He'll know when they're ready because they'll start turning an orange or a deep purple colour. And then after those eggs have hatched, they're on their own. Mm -hmm. Dad gets lost. They all have to absolutely make do with it Mm -hmm. and just try and do whatever they can to stay alive. So actually only about 5% of them survive. They aren't dependent on anyone. They're completely independent from hatching. And they go off and try and hunt their food straight away. So when they're that teeny tiny, they'll be looking for things like zooplankton. But as they get older, they'll move on to, like, plankton, larval fish, and a tiny kind of, kind of, mycid shrimp. And they use that kind of long snout that you mentioned to suck them up. <laughs> so, yeah, that's sea dragons. I love them. Um, and that ruby sea dragon that you liked was actually only discovered in 2015. It was the third no t- way. The, yeah, the third to be discovered. And it was the first... Be discovered in 150 years. Wow.
0: I mean, I love them and they're beautiful and they're cute and everything, but if someone was new to Earth but knew the language and you were like, we have three species of sea dragon, you'd be a bit underwhelmed by them,
1: size-wise. You shut your mouth. <gasps> <laughs> no, I, I, I take your point. Just because they're, they're not giant. They are an animal that would be the benefit from being seven to ten times bigger. Like, can you imagine... Like a two metre long leafy sea dragon. Yeah. Now that would be excellent. You could ride it like a horse.
0: Right, and you could hold on to its leafy fronds.
1: And the ruby sea dragon's named after its colour. And that's believed to be because it lives in slightly deeper waters than the other species of sea dragon. So as amazing as these sea dragons are, they're actually least concern.
0: That's fantastic. Which is
1: exciting because... Every time I, I feel like every time I bring on a really cool, exciting-looking thing that you're like, oh, my God, I've never heard of it before, that's because it's close to death. Yeah. And there's barely any left. But actually, I say they're doing okay. They were classed as near-threatened. Mm-hmm. They've recently, within the last 10 or so years, been declassified to least concern, but that's potentially due to there not really being enough population data. Right. And basically, the estimates that the threats that they're facing aren't too bad at the minute. It's also to do with a lot of conservation work that's happened. But I think because they are so well camouflaged, it's hard to get a clear idea of how many there are. Hmm. So the least concern might not be painting the full picture. Right. Because they do have quite a lot of threats, mainly being caught by collectors because they are incredibly unique. Lots of people might want them as pets. They're really tricky to look after in private settings. So if you've got the full setup of a zoo, they do fairly okay. There's still not many zoos that have them, which we'll come on to, but keeping them as a private keeper is fairly bad, mm. especially pretty much only if they've come from the wild. So there are very strict regulations now to make sure that if private collectors are keeping sea dragons, they are sea dragons that have been born in captivity yeah. because they tend to do better than ones that have been caught from the wild and mm. popped into an aquarium of the size that most kind of private aquarium keepers have.
0: Yeah that makes
1: sense but they're also threatened by lots of other things that threaten marine wildlife so lots of of habitat loss lots of warming as well and they're also when they're younger they're a bit more vulnerable to predators because they're slow swimmers and they're teeny tiny but when they grow up there's practically nothing that really eats sea dragons because they're really difficult to find because of how well camouflaged they are nice but yeah, things like pollution, industrial runoff as well. And so actually, in response to all of those kind of building threats, the species has been totally protected in South Australia since 1987, Victoria since 95, and Western Australia since 91. And it's listed in the Australian Government's Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act of 1999, which means that the welfare of the species has to be considered as part of any developmental project. Hmm. So a little bit like great-crested newts and things like that here. If you're yeah. building something... In those states in Australia, you have to consider any impacts you might have on populations of leafy and weedy sea dragons Mm. um, on the coasts, which is fantastic. And so that's, again, another reason why they were declassified to least concern, because those numbers did see a bit of a boost. It's also the official marine emblem of the state of South Australia and features in the logos of the Adelaide University Scuba Club (laughs) and the Marine Life Society of South Australia as well and there is a festival that happens every other year called the leafy sea dragon festival within the boundaries of the council of yankalilla in south australia it has now unfortunately i found out been renamed so it's no longer called the leafy sea dragon festival it's now named after the region in which the festival happens lame um, but it was a festival that celebrated the culture of the Fleriu Peninsula. It celebrated the leafy sea dragon in its first few iterations and now it kind of celebrates the local culture, the arts and things like that and it seems like a really nice celebration. So it we has been a really kind of big part of that region of Australia. I think probably because it is so unique and amazing and very, very cool looking. Yeah. So within zoos, there are a fair few zoos in the world that keep weedy sea dragons. They seem to be a little bit easier. They have actually bred in captivity before, okay. whereas leafy sea dragons... I haven't found any evidence yet that any of them have ever bred in captivity. I know there are a few articles from around 2015 that said they had never bred, and I've not found anything that suggests that they have bred since. Hmm. So I think the Weedy Sea Dragon seems to be a bit more successful in aquariums, and I believe there are still Weedy Sea Dragons at Weymouth Sea Life Centre in the UK.
0: Oh, let's go!
1: Yeah, because I really want to see them. Hmm. But not many leafy sea dragons in the world i managed to find four zoos that definitely keep them at the minute and a few that may do or may not i couldn't find that for certain but there's places like the lisbon aquarium
0: mm-hmm. which seems
1: brilliant i feel like every time i mention a fish i'm like where keeps these and it's like oh the lisbon aquarium yeah, you've
0: had a whole i'm pretty sure one of these episodes has been like an entire love letter to lisbon aquarium
1: <laughs> yeah most likely to be fair but also Minnesota Zoo has them in their aquarium. And the Birch Aquarium at the Scripps Institute for Oceanography, which is a research centre looking into marine environments and kind of how to protect them as well. Mm. That's got what looks like an amazing nine-foot-tall enclosure specifically developed in a way that will help them to breathe. So it looks absolutely stunning. It was brand-new, built on 2019. Ooh. And it's got the perfect kind of conditions because they need... Lots of seaweed and lots of outcroppings to hide away. Mm. But they also need a nice bit of clear space so that they can do their courtship dance without getting tangled in anything. Again, I learnt this from the husbandry guidelines. <laughs> so Maybe it,
0: you could have a leafy sea yeah, dragon.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> we we can have them in a tank as we float down our lazy river when <gasps> we're rich.
0: Yes, I'm very excited for that.
1: I've done the same with you this week. and you know, I've actually not really thought much about how to put the leafy sea dragon in Planty Planty Zuzu, but... We have got a full-on aquarium, a dedicated aquarium building, because remember I said, Mm. I like aquarium buildings because you know what you're going to get. I like that you're going in going, yeah, there's going to be a lot of fish in here. Mm. Boom. So, so far, we've only got sunfish in there. Sunfishes and sea dragons wouldn't mix very well, so we're not going to put them in the same tank. Mm. But I want to make the sea dragons a bit of a spectacle because it feels like they've got very specific needs, and so that means the aquariums that I've seen that show them Oh, your kind of standard aquarium setup. Square window, inter-tank. That's all they need, you know? It's nice Mm -hmm. and simple, but it can be a little bit dull. Yeah. So I want... Do you remember when we went to Bristol Aquarium? Yeah, I love it. And they've got a little bit where you can pop your head in and you can be, like, with the seahorses. Yeah. I want to do something like that in a big sea dragon tank so it's not going to stress the sea dragons out because they can apparently get very, very stressed in captivity yep. if certain conditions aren't met. So, they, again, they're a bit fussy with the water temperatures and the kind of conditions they're in. Mm. So if we can... Make sure that we can get that kind of pop your head in type thing a little bit like the meerkat tunnels that you often see at different zoos and stuff where you can pop your head up in and it feels like you're in the environment. I want something like that, but also I want to mimic their environment, so like you were saying last week about a playground that makes you feel like an ant and everything's big. I want several tanks of weedy and leafy and solid sort of ruby sea dragons as well yeah, let's just add th- let's add all three of them in. And I want you to kind of walk, and I want them to be long and cylindrical and tubey, but big.
0: I want to swim in them like a mermaid. No. I'm going to have a part-time role at Plankton Point Zoo where I... Have you seen those women in the US and places where yeah. they dress up like mermaids and they swim around in aquarium tanks? That's what I want to do.
1: I want you to be able to walk through a kind of winding pathway, and on either side you've got windy glass tanks as well that mm. are... There's lots of curvature to them, but they're thin enough that you can see through the other side. Ooh. Now, how that works from actually looking after them, I don't know or understand. So, as you walk down, I want like green fabric hanging from the ceiling so you feel like you're in amongst the seaweed mm. and you can kind of peer through the seaweed on one side and see the weedy sea dragon, on the other side, see the leafy. And then, kind of, if you go down, you see the ruby as well. Mm. So, I want it really immersive. And I want, maybe I want that as the entrance way to an Australian section of Mm. the aquarium. Maybe that's how you move from, I don't know, North America or Asia or wherever into the Australian section. You have to go through this curtain of seaweed, and in amongst it, you can see all of the various different types of sea dragons. That's... I imagine I will eventually get around to popping some pipe fish or some seahorses in <laughs> as well. Yeah. So yeah. I love that's that. That's my addition to Planty Plenty of Suzu this week. Beautiful. So on that note, I think we should wrap up the episode and let our listeners get on with their lives.
0: Yeah, we can go make dinner.
1: Yes, let's do that.
0: We did it earlier this evening. Normally we're wrapping up about twelve. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and now it's only half past eight. Woo. So thank you again for listening to Planty Plenty Zuzu. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, if you did like it, you can like, rate, review, subscribe, etc. on any of the social media platforms that you listen to us on, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Podbean mm, or
0: wherever. any
1: of the various others.
0: Yeah, I also I popped a few episodes on YouTube on my YouTube channel and I'm going to keep popping them up there. Uh, as we release them just as another accessible place for people to find us fabulous but yeah make sure you follow us on plenty plenty zoo on instagram uh, we will be ramping up social media efforts soon so uh, it's a good time to get on board and you can follow us on twitter at plenty plenty zoo probably won't be ramping up our efforts there. <laughs> <laughs> seems a bit of a hellhole at the moment but we do sometimes tweet <laughs> Come to our website, www.plantyplantyzuzu.com and subscribe to our newsletter. Which we haven't released,
1: but Will. may do at some point in the future.
0: Yeah, we're very excited about all the plans and things and projects and everything that we have coming up, so we're just very excited to share it We just
1: have you. no time! We're
0: slowly cr- like claiming time back, one scraped fingernail across the dirt after another. That's how I picture claiming time back. Stop looking at me like that. Clawing it back by not sleeping. Woo! (laughs) On that note, bye! Bye! Well, that was deeply unhinged. (laughs)